Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show, council votes for LRT. No kidding. Why is the Green Party imploding? Biden and Putin hold a summit. Successful? It's coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. LRT is a go. I think this all started before I was born. And hopefully it's finished before I die. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. That's pretty good. We literally just wrote that in the last 30 seconds. Uh, good afternoon, and he could read my handwriting. That's that's what's even more impressive. Uh, good afternoon. It is twelve ten. It is nine hundred CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show between the pipes. On uh, wow, great news breaking just as the show is starting. It looks like uh, Hamilton's LRT is a go. You can jump into the conversation. Send us a note via the website Scott Thompson at nine hundred chml dot com. Uh, Hamilton's General Issues Committee has voted nine to six to negotiate a memorandum of understanding with MetroLink to build the LRT. Pending a city council approval next Wednesday, it means the city will accept a federal and provincial government offer of three point four billion to build the fourteen k line from McMaster to Eastgate square councillor brad clark remains opposed to the project saying he speaks for most of the ward nine residents but he has applauded mayor fred eisenberger for his advocacy here he is i didn't think the feds were going to come on board i think i told the mayor that i think i was pretty candid with him that wow the odds of this happening are pretty slim um so congratulations um are in order to his advocacy to the federal and provincial government. All right, and here's what uh, it, what the mayor, Fred Eisenberger, had to say. I appreciate the vote. I appreciate the moving forward. Uh, I would certainly appreciate that uh, from here to four that we have a council that is prepared to help make this work as, a, as opposed to helping make it uh, a difficult and complicated process going forward. Wow. All right. Let's bring in Ken Mann, uh, of course, reporter for Global News, covers City Hall and uh, has been following this for I don't know how long. Ken, how are you? Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Scott. How are you today? I'm doing well. How long have you been covering this story? <laughs> I've lost track, really, Scott. It's been a very, very, very long time. Well, over a decade ago was when this whole idea was first kind of broached. Uh, uh, the, the feasibility of it and all, and, and now here we are, however many years later, I think about 12, and uh, yeah, it looks like we're finally going to move forward with this after today's 9-6 vote to enter into the Memorandum of Understanding with uh, Metrolinx, and of course this all still will need City Council's final approval next next Wednesday as well. Uh, anything, any reason to believe next Wednesday there'll be a, a, a stick thrown in the spokes here? Uh, not based on what I heard today, Scott. Um, there, there was a separate motion from uh, Ancaster's Lloyd Ferguson to offset what will be the city's responsibility for operating and maintenance costs by eliminating uh, existing bus service, 29 buses along that beeline between McMaster and Eastgate Square, as well as eliminating some tax incentive programs in the downtown core, which will save the city, um, I believe the estimate today was $8 million a year. 
so uh, those things will offset the city's operating and maintenance costs, and that was enough to bring Lloyd uh, Ferguson as well as Dundas Councillor Arlene Vanderbeek on board today. And so based on based on that and, and what was said today, I wouldn't think there would be any change of direction next Wednesday. But after this long, I wouldn't want to take anything for granted either. <laughs> so, uh, so City Council is happy with, because obviously uh, a bone of contention was operating costs, maintenance costs and such. Is, is City Council, have they come to terms with that? Or uh, uh, again, how, how did this all go down? Well, uh, as I was saying, the the, the proposal from uh, uh, Councillor Ferguson's motion was very key on that front today. The estimates on the operating costs are anywhere from six point six and a half million dollars a year or so, up to sixteen million dollars a year, but. Once the city uh, removes those tax incentive programs as directed, and once it takes the buses off of the B line, which is something that is not supported by uh, the Amalgamated Transit Union or or the uh, Hamilton Transit Riders Association and others, by the way, that will as was discussed today, offset the city's responsibility for operating and maintenance costs. So that will ease the impact on taxpayers. Uh, there was also all, uh, always chatter about synergy between HSR and the LRT. Is there any more movement on that? Or are they very much two separate ent- entities? Uh, no, the, uh, a lot of councillors are very concerned about making sure that the two uh, operate in synergy with one another, that that uh, people who ride the buses and live close to the um, LRT line now uh, are still going to be able to, to get to the LRT line easily if they need bus service to get from one to the other, and how people can will be able to you know, to integrate the two systems in the future. But that's all going to be part of uh, establishing this memorandum of understanding. And I'm sure there'll be a whole lot more discussion about that to come in the months and even years ahead. Is this a new era for city council, do you think, Ken? Or is this just them wanting to get this issue put behind us and move on? Well, I, I, I really, people didn't change their perspectives too much on it today. As I say, it was the key votes from Ferguson and Vanderbeek that pulled this over to a 9-6 to six vote in favor of the Memorandum of Understanding. Uh, most other councillors, whether they support or or all other councillors, whether they support or, appro- or oppose the project, remain entrenched in those positions, and it was as such with their votes today. So uh, one final kick at the can on Wednesday, as you mentioned, no reason to suspect there'll be any hurdles there. What happens next? Well, then the city staff will go away and they will they will work on establishing the, the memorandum of understanding with Metrolinx and any other government agencies that need to be need to be involved in that process, because, of course, there are one point seven billion dollars involved here from both the federal and provincial governments. And once they have developed that draft memorandum of understanding, they will bring it back to city councillors and uh, we'll go from there. All right, an exciting day, but mind you, uh, as Ken has alluded to, we've had those in the past. Uh, Ken Mann with us <laughs> yes, on Global News Radio 900 CHML, covering the LRT beat, and certainly uh, good news at this point uh, for the hammer. Ken, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks very much, Scott. Have a great day.
You too. Let's bring in Larry DeAnne, former mayor of Hamilton. He is with us now. Larry, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Well, I'm, I'm certainly uh, better uh, after le- learning of that vote, that's for sure. So what are your thoughts? Where's your head right now, considering how far we've come? Well, it's a huge relief. And uh, I think the nine councillors who voted in favor of this project, or at least in favor of moving it forward, and uh, and working out a memorandum of agreement have done the right thing. I think they will be remembered as being the leaders and visionaries uh, for um, for the city. Uh, and um, uh, perhaps the accolades will come only after the LRT is built. Uh, but let me tell you, uh, it is great news for the city to see us accept $3.4 billion from other levels of government to build a huge infrastructure program uh, project that is going to not only uh, help ridership, but also the revitalization of a needy part of our city. And uh, and I think it's great. I think that Mayor Eisenberger uh, deserves tremendous credit uh, because he's been steadfast. I think that Philomena Tassi, uh, the federal uh, MP, uh, deserves credit along with her government. And uh, Premier Ford uh, and Donna Skelly as well, who did not stand in the way, um, deserves credit for bringing this investment to the city of Hamilton. So now, uh, as they work out the details of an MOU, um, I think uh, we're in good shape. Uh, What about those that didn't vote for it? Does it matter at this point, or are they just following the advice of their constituents? Well, of course it matters. I mean, six votes in opposition from some of the leaders of council um, matters a lot because their uh, opinions carry weight. Um, and so um, I, although I'm disappointed that they voted the way they did, uh, I guess they had their reasons and some of them stated their reasons um, in debate, I'm sure, and they'll restate them again when council ratifies next week. Uh, but uh, I humbly um, say that they made the wrong call. Um, for maybe what they think are the right reasons, but but not, I think, the right call to make on this project of, of Im- tremendous importance for the city of Hamilton. So, you know, they will not be obstructionist at this point. I mean, nine to six is a good um, is a good majority to have. It's a comfortable majority to have. And the only thing that will derail it at this point is if for some reason the memorandum of agreement doesn't follow the principles that have been established, uh, and um, and then people will have second thoughts. But I expect that since we agreed to an MOU once before, uh, and now we have uh, far more certainty around the funding, uh, that they'll agree to an MOU again, and then we're off to the races. Uh, there's the famous line, and then we're off to the races. When are we off to the races? How many more hurdles or 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 scenarios are there where that six could make this more difficult? Well, you know, Scott, we've had this conversation before, and this being Hamilton, you never say uh, yeah. that a project of this size is ever over until, you know, the shovels hit the ground. Uh, but uh, I would say today's vote was pivotal. I think today's vote augurs uh, well for the uh, for the ratification vote next week. I don't see that changing in any way. And I think it augurs well for when the MOU comes back uh, to be approved by council. Uh, 
So although it sounds as if we're inching along, uh, in fact, uh, the breakthrough uh, vote was today. And I expect that, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll uh, have the other levels of government uh, now kicking into high gear uh, to implement uh, this project, not only to negotiate the MOU, uh, but also to actually plan out um, a construction schedule on the assumption that uh, that everything will go well from here on in. So although you never say never in terms of the opposition, I mean, I know what we went through uh, in my day when uh, we built the Red Hill Expressway, that we took uh, many more votes uh, than uh, have been taken on LRT. And at the end of the day, uh, there were, um, you know, citizens who couldn't accept reality or what was good for the for the city uh, and um, protested. And, you know, they, they sat on trees and they sat in the valley hoping to stop bulldozers, but we managed to do that project. In spite of that opposition, I don't expect this same level of opposition here, but there's still maybe some uh, agitating, but council has made a pivotal decision, and I think they're not going to be uh, sidetracked from uh, pushing this forward. But since day one, Larry, I mean, it's always been about funding. We don't want to pay for any of this. And literally, this deal is, like everybody has said, you cannot turn it down from two different levels of government, from two different political parties. So as funding, you know, slowly becomes less and less of an issue, I mean, are we not running out of excuses not to build this? And now it looks like those on council that wanted to save face have saved face. The vote went through anyway, and yet they, you know, so the city gets its win, and they get their win win because they get to say that they were sticking up for their constituents at the end yeah. of the day are we not running out of reasons or excuses to build this thing you know uh, and wouldn't that be nice if those who have said no and they've said no perhaps thinking that they had to reflect their constituents views which is knowing that it would serious. get vote no knowing that it would get voted through anyway larry and that's right. you know that's just you know anyway and, and you know that's sometimes the uh, the, uh, the the cynical game that's played uh, but, uh, you know, I have too much respect for those people who voted no. Uh, I've not had a chance to speak uh, to too many of them in terms of their rationale other than what, uh, you know, they said publicly. Uh, but I'm hoping now that they see that the train is moving in one direction, that they'll come together. They'll say to their constituents, we fought the good fight. Uh, it's moving forward, and now it's time to push in the same direction. I am hoping that that still will happen, and maybe it'll happen as early as next week. Although uh, maybe I might be being a tinge idealistic to assume that. But I'm hoping once the MOU, uh, which was approved overwhelmingly the last time, comes in, that there will not be any more of these debates about, you know, one step forward and a few steps back. I'm hoping that people will understand the significance, the importance. We've had the democratic uh, debate. We've had the democratic vote. Uh, the will of the people was expressed in the last election when the mayor who was running in favor of this project won, and that's Fred. Um, and now we've had uh, levels of government step up, uh, and we're moving. And I, it behooves all members of council now to push in the same direction. And I'm hoping that that'll happen. That'll be a great message to Hamiltonians, frankly. It'll be, look, we represented you. The will of the majority of council went the other way. Now it's important for us to be part of the government and not the opposition.
Larry Deany with us, former mayor of Hamilton, talking about LRT council votes to go ahead with a memorandum of understanding, another step closer, and another big day for the hammer. Uh, Larry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. All the best. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Feel free to send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Lots of comment coming in on LRT. Council has voted to continue with the memorandum of understanding, nine to six vote. Uh, still six that didn't vote for it, but it passed. Uh, to which Dave says the corks would have been popping in KW and Greater Toronto if we turned down LRT. For once, we will be popping the courts, uh, corks. Hamilton is becoming a city to be reckoned with. I would agree with that. To which Tavares says, now the old people can drink coffee on a steady train. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you uh, through the various means to get a hold of us. All right. Uh, whether you follow the Green Party or not, you've no doubt heard of them in the last couple of days a lot because they've been in the news in regard to their leader, Enemy Paul. And uh, at one point, it looked as if uh, she was going to get ousted as leader, and there seemed to be a movement on to do just that. It didn't appear that uh, Elizabeth May, the former party leader, was supporting the new leader in any way, as well as a uh, another MP walks across the floor from the Green Party to the Liberal Party. Uh, not another, a uh, Green Party uh, MP. To talk more about all of this, Muhammad Ali with a senior consultant, Crestview Strategies, and is with us now. Mohammed, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. How are you? I'm doing good, thank you. So explain what is happening with the Green Party here. To those that have may not have been following all of this, what's happened? So uh, I think everyone's getting a, a crash course on how the Green Party's uh, internal operations work. So um, right now, uh, you know, the current kind of short term, we're hearing a lot about uh, the internal fissures around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, as you can imagine, that was a very, it's a very polarizing uh, situation, uh, and and can have very uh, polarizing viewpoints from a number of people, including political parties. Um, so, but there's been a lot of rumblings and internal conflicts that have been, you know, spilling out into the public for a number of months for the Green Party, particularly ever since Enemy Paul became leader. Uh, and she had her by-election bid that she lost to uh, to Marcy in. So there's there's a lot going on there in terms of just big party problems for a small party, and um, and we're seeing a lot of power struggles, uh, Elizabeth May and such, and you're seeing um, folks kind of leave the party, and former leaders such as of the of the party are also kind of speaking out. So it's a lot of a lot of chatter, a lot of airing out of dirty laundry right now in the public uh you know I, i've spoke on this uh, many times and and i believe that 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 is that what is happening here is the green party is trying to find a common denominator within its party for policy beyond the environment uh you know uh the, the green party movement obviously uh focused uh, you know mainly on the environment that's how they how they uh, started and, and, and got uh, Canada's, Canadians' uh, attention 
attention as time has gone on, uh, gone on they've certainly introduced and 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 made canadians aware of of the climate change uh, discussion but now as time goes on decade later or so uh, all parties have some sort of green platform have some sort of environmental platform or climate change platform so therefore uh, how relevant is the green party now especially when they appear to be a one-trick pony the trouble now seems to be that as they're building depth or bench strength and trying to come up with uh, other issues other uh, other policy on issues that it takes to govern whether it's fiscal health care uh, social issues what have you that's where the parties uh, disagreeing I mean they're all have a common denominator with the environment beyond that though uh, that's where the work needs to be done is that accurate yeah that's pretty accurate there's um, you know you're right like the party started as a kind of like a single issue kind of party um, and Elizabeth May being the kind of base of that movement, uh, really what, what the Green Party was for a long time. And then you came to a point where, um, as you like will remember in the last election, there was a lot of chatter that the Green Party could make significant uh, seat gain, uh, pro- probably at the expense of the NDP. And so you have this situation where the party is trying to transform. And so you have folks like Anime Paul who are like, well, if we want to be relevant and and possibly achieve party status and maybe one day in the long term win government, we need to have more than just an environmental policy because other parties are, are acutely talking about it. So how do we differentiate ourselves? And just like any party, uh, you need to talk about health care and talk about fiscal responsibility, you know, national security and such. And all these different topics need to be in. And there's a there's a kind of a clash right now in, in the party of, between the membership of those who are content with just being vocal kind of activist voices and then you have others who are trying to say no like let's we can make an electoral gains here let's let's think it through and like, let's aim for that and so you're kind of seeing that play out a lot more now where enemy paul is the group that's trying to lead the we can make some parliamentary you know growth and then you have others who are like no no, no. we stand by certain views and that's it well, again, you, uh, it seems like they have to ask themselves if they're uh, an environmental organization or if they're a political party who's going to weigh in on the dozen or so other issues that have Canadians concerned. Yeah, and, and that's where you're seeing this. So, I mean, it's, it's ironic that the Israeli-Palestinian one is, is this big piece that some of the membership are, are actually jumping at the leader for when if they're content with just talking about environmental issues, but then now you're drawing the line on this specific issue at a, at a, to a leader who, who's uh, transformed, uh, you know, the context around who can be a leader. You know, first black woman, first Jewish woman to lead a federal party in, in Canada. Uh, that's significant. And you're seeing, you know, are, is there some sort of something else going on underneath the you know underneath the hood so to speak um and they need to kind of figure out where do we stand in general on it on pieces you can have disagreement you know liberals conservatives ndp they all have internal challenges and issues that they clash about yeah but you don't see it aired out like this where you're having staffers you know declaring to destroy political careers of, of sitting mps um, you know, very, very strange situation. Do you find it surprising that the Green Party has gotten as far as it has without expanding beyond this singular issue? 
without discussing other policy, without, because again, when you think of the Green Party, I, I'm not sure anybody can name their fiscal policy or, or what their policy is on security, for example, or, or, or anything for that matter beyond environmental issues. So are you surprised they've gone this far as a, as a singular issue party without working heavily? Because there's an awful lot of work uh, to be done here before they're ready for prime time. Part of like the success they've found is really, you know, you have to give credit to to Elizabeth May here because she she became the Green Party. It's founded on on a single issue, but she became the face and you know was strong voice on on key issues and and even talking about um, you know human rights and you know she dabble in other areas, uh, which kind of created kind of like a cult following behind her, which you know, equaled Green Party support. But once she was trying to move from her, then that's when people were like, so what do we what do we follow? What do we stand for? You know, we don't have Elizabeth Bain that's we're like, hey, Elizabeth May is awesome. Let's go that way. Like you're you're having this kind of crisis of identity almost in, in a way where we knew what we stood for before because we believed Elizabeth May. But now who do we stand for? What do we believe? I think identity so crisis... I think identity crisis is is a good term, and again, it, it's you, you know you have to thank the the Green Party for keeping these issues in the forefront and literally making all the other parties adjust uh, to 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 what they're saying. But it almost it seems as if they're a green advisory, an environmental advisory panel for the other parties because they have no other positions that really stand out. Yeah, and 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 it's also important to remember that the Green Party on a provincial level has demonstrated a little bit more, I guess, mature policy positions and a more developed, you know, you see that in BC, you see that in PEI, um, you're starting to see a little bit that creep up in places like Ontario, where uh, there's a little bit more foundation, uh, you know, obviously a little bit less scrutiny because, you know, anything federal has a lot more uh, media attention around it. But uh, there's a lot more conversation and debate on, on issues beyond just the environment in places like BC, where the Green Party is heavily involved in, where their, uh, you know, their main kind of a opponent, so to speak, is is the NDP out there. So the federal the federal party is kind of in this weird spot. They don't know where they stand. They're trying to be all encompassing on the national, but they they're directionless in, in a way right now, and they're and it seems to be kind of funneled towards enemy Paul. Well, for better or for worse, you know, it's not clear yet. Is there more to the story? Is she missing out on some opportunities? Is she not providing the leadership that they expected? Or is there other issues that she's just being targeted for? Um, kind of like a, you know, people venting out the frustration of where the party is going. You bring up a valid point too, Muhammad, in that uh, Green parties d- differ when it comes to other a- aspects of their policy. They differ quite a bit from from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, whether it's province to province, federally, provincially, or even uh, nationally in, in other parts of the world. The Green Party in Germany is perhaps different, a lot different than, than what it is out west. Um, so it seems that the provinces have a little bit more handle on that or a little bit more well-rounded. Is that accurate? And, and how do you explain the provinces seeming to have a handle on it, but the, the federal party doesn't? I, I think that's where we find um, how parties are structured. Um, you know, there's the internal kind of component where you have the face of it, but then you also have the, the staff there that can help mobilize and, and bring people together. I mean, 
to be honest, like it's it's not easy to uh, cover entire country. Uh, you know, there is a difference between you know issues that matter in BC are not the same issues sure. that matter in Ontario, don't are not the same that matter in Newfoundland, right? And so it's easier for a provincial party to kind of you know uh, gravitate around core issues that matter to a specific demographic or specific region or, or province. Uh, but you also will see that the provincial parties will have a different structure to them. And there's a different kind of hierarchy that exists so that people stay in line, but also understand that there can be healthy debate, but you need to understand what is the, what's the goal. And I think you're seeing in some of the provincial iterations that there is a general understanding that the goal is, is like, let's amplify the environmental message, but also seek growth in the legislature for seats. It appears that, yeah, they're having a struggle growing beyond green. What about MPs crossing the floor or an MP crossing the floor? What does this mean for the Liberals? You know, for the Liberals, this is a good get. Uh, Fredericton is one of those, you know, swing writings uh, in the 2019 election. Uh, Jenica Adwin, who is the green MP that now turned to a Liberal MP, she beat out the incumbent, Matt DeCourcy. Um and it was a you know tight three-way race. So for the Liberals to snag a solid MP uh, from the area with a little bit of political uh, brand awareness from her dad being a local politician as well, uh, that's a good get for them, uh, particularly as they try to build up and strengthen their, their green creds uh, in a part of the country that the Green Party was actually hoping to make some electoral success. So, you know, voters that saw Jenica Adwin as a viable candidate that can speak to their issues, also cares about the environment. That is a big get for liberals to validate themselves uh, in a key seat and a key riding. What about her constituents? How would they feel? Constituents will need to kind of assess on their, on their own, right? And I said, like, it was a you know, hotly three-way race. So vote, you know, uh, voters can swing, uh, you know, left or right or green, liberal, conservative. So it really, Jenica will, have, Jenica will have to explain to voters and to her constituents why she made the change. And she's trying right now, but that conversation will happen at the door. Um, she'll be able to attract liberal voters that didn't have a candidate to vote for. So there is another base out there for her to tap into. But also the green voters, there is a, you know, a reason why they gravitated towards her. She might be able to pull some of those votes over, but there she might lose some. I think that's kind of a natural... Um, reaction in a in a floor cluster that we see with, with in other situations as well. What does this mean for the NDP? Anything? I I don't think this means much for the NDP, particularly out in Brunswick right now. They weren't doing too well uh, polling wise. I do think they do run into the issue that if the Liberals are seen as a viable, environmentally conscious party, that even yeah. a Green Party member would go to them. The NDP have really tried to champion and, and wedge themselves and make some space between the Green and the Liberals on the environment file. Uh, their inability to fit a player in trying to get her to come over doesn't look great. doesn't really hurt them too much, but it doesn't look great. It doesn't help them. What does this do for the credibility of the Greens, the whole leadership issue plus the MP? Uh, how, much, how much influence do they have in Canada? The movement is, is situated, right? There aren't um, huge swaths of green supporters across the country. So when you only had three MPs and now down to two, 
that's a third of your cock is gone um, when you're trying to grow. There will be, you know, we're seeing the questions of enemy pose of leadership. Can she hold on? You know, it's, it's unclear. You're seeing a mobilized Quebec wing that wants her out. Um, you're seeing, you know, the kind of machine of, of the party, uh, you know, trying to figure out where, where's the right spot. Is, is Paul the right, the right person? The, the green, green voters will, will be wondering, where do we stand? Where do we go from here? Because if, if a, a star candidate like Jenica Adwin for them in a new part of the country where they can find electoral success leaves, do we have the right approach? Do we have the right policy? Do we have the right leader? Those are valid questions that need to be answered, whether it is by Paul or whether it is by uh, another new leader. All right, Muhammad Ali with a senior consultant for Crestview Strategy, uh, Strategies. Muhammad, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, as we speak right now, uh, President Joe Biden of the United States is uh, commenting on the summit between him and Vladimir Putin, Russian uh, president. Uh, they were hoping to restore a common agenda at their Lake Geneva summit. Obviously, um, <laughs> uh, a very tenuous relationship between the two. Uh, a different world now that Biden is in charge as opposed to Donald Trump. What does that mean moving forward let's bring in rob goodman professor with the department of politics and public administration at ryerson university and with us now rob thanks for the time hope you're well uh, i am i hope you are too yes thanks so much is this about policy or more about just reestablishing some sort of attitude or changing the attitude well i think there are some policies that were discussed at the summit it sounds like um uh, cyber warfare uh, and hacking human rights were some things that were at the top of the agenda you know but i think most people who are watching the summit and its outcome in these uh, dueling press conferences afterwards uh, don't really expect that any major policy commitments are going to come out of this. I, I think, as you said, it's a little bit more about uh, putting the relationship on something more of an even keel uh, after the uh, really four tumultuous years of Donald Trump. So how is this different now with Biden at the helm of the U.S. than it was Trump? I mean, are we going to see a change in direction here? Are we going to, uh, uh, many say there was a vacuum created uh, when Donald Trump pulled away from the allies. Are we, are we seeing something different now? Well, I think in some ways it's different and in other ways uh, a little less so. Um, I think President Trump in many ways uh, was personally very sympathetic to uh, Vladimir Putin. I think we saw that at the uh, 2018 Helsinki summit uh, in which, uh, you know, Trump said that he had Putin's word that there was no interference in the U.S. election and, and left at that. Uh, so I think on a personal level, um, Trump really looked up to Putin. But on the other hand, I think when you look at uh, structurally about the, the way the two countries interact on the world stage and you look at the way that other politicians in the U.S. react to Russia, I think what we saw is that despite Trump really trying to change the relationship a little bit, you know, there were um, you know, there was legislation in Congress that increased sanctions on Russia, uh, there is still a lot of hostility and animosity to Russia coming out of uh, uh, U.S. Uh, political leaders across the political spectrum. You know, so I think just focusing on the relationships of the uh, two people at the top doesn't really get the whole picture. I think the whole picture is that you know, despite the fact that I think Trump tried to change the U.S.-Russia relationship, I, it was a lot stickier than he might have anticipated. Uh, that being said, does does Putin change his course now? Does he realize he's dealing with somebody completely different? Well, it's interesting to see, you know, how Putin reacted to Biden. Um, 
One thing that was interesting to me is a, is a comment that he made in an interview, I believe, with the U.S. News before the summit started, in which he said that uh, in many ways Biden was a uh, more predictable uh, counterpart than Trump was, and just because that Biden has been someone who's been involved in foreign policy uh, and U.S.-Russia relations on a high level, and going back to the 70s or 80s when he was visiting Russia, uh, leading an arms uh, control delegation from the U.S. Senate. And so I think in many ways, um, Russia and, and Putin specifically know what they're getting with Biden, you know, someone who uh, in many ways doesn't want to rock the boat of that relationship. Um, and recently referred to Putin as what I called, I think, in, in Biden's words, uh, a worthy adversary. You know, I think my impression is that this is the sort of language that uh, Putin and, and Russia in general likes to hear, because what they're really after uh, on the level of, uh, of symbolism or perception is the idea that uh, the U.S. and Russia are, are geopolitical peers, um, that they can talk as something approaching equals. Um, and I think that if that's the, I, I, I'm not sure what kind of policy commitments are going to come out of this, but I think if there's anything that um, if Putin wants to come out of this symbolically, uh, it's the idea that um, despite the fact the U.S. and Russia are adversaries, uh, they can relate to each other uh, you know, more or less as important players in the geopolitical stage rather than the U.S. really trying to dictate to Russia, uh, which I think was in many ways the case after the fall of the USSR back in the 90s, which for many Russians of Putin's generation uh, was sort of the traumatic geopolitical experience of their lives. Uh, obviously, the G7 winding up just prior to this, allies seeming almost giddy. They were so united and, and things were seemingly back on track. How does Putin feel about that? Well, I think having a united front between the U.S. and the allies is always uh, worse from a Russian perspective. I think if you if you looked at Russia's approach to the U.S. Uh, in a geopolitical perspective, I think what they were after was trying to, you know, the greater extent possible to uh, pry the U.S. apart from its uh, allies in NATO and the G7. Uh, that's been a Russian objective for, for quite a long time, and I think it's fair to say that, that NATO itself has, has um, for most of its existence, and certainly in recent years, uh, understood its mission as being a... a, a an organization that was all about countering Russia on the world stage. So the extent that Russia was able to drive any kind of uh, division between the NATO partners over, say, issues like defense spending, uh, that was in Russia's interest. You know, so to the extent that the U.S. and its uh, Western European allies are a little bit more on the same page now, or at least get along better on an interpersonal level, um, I think that's probably good for NATO and, and less good for Russia. But on the other hand, you know, whenever I uh, talk about these issues, I always try to caution people that the structural issues that are in place, the issues about um, defense budgets uh, across the NATO and G7 allies, the issues about the strategic interests of all the countries concerned, don't really change from administration to administration. Uh, you know, personnel changes at the top and, and um, leaders change at the top. You know, but interests in the way that countries interact uh, is more permanent in regards. So despite the fact that uh, the uh, U.S. and its G7 and NATO allies are probably getting along better interpersonally these days, I think the effect of that uh, on geopolitics and policy is always going to be a little bit more limited than it looks like uh, in the aftermath of one of these big events or stage for public consumption. You were talking about cybersecurity, obviously, on the docket for this. We certainly remember what happened uh, last U.S. election, Russian interference and such. Uh, it, it seemed, and I, I caught a little bit of Putin's press conference here uh, when I could, but it seemed that they were, uh, or he was uh, denying any of that. How do you move forward on something as large as cybersecurity? Well, that's that's really difficult. Um, I think uh, you know Putin certainly did deny there's any kind of Russian uh, interference um, in, in the election, as well as in uh, more day-to-day hacking of U.S. institutions that uh, U.S. intelligence services think they're coming from Russia. 
Uh, and he also pointed the finger at the U.S. I think he said that um, uh, the U.S. as well is also a, a, a big rule breaker when it comes to uh, cybersecurity and hacking. You know, as far as I'm concerned, it seems to me that when you're dealing with two superpowers, both of them uh, probably um, don't have entirely clean hands. Both of them probably had extensive uh, cyber warfare programs. So I think the best thing to do, and this is not something that's going to be hammered out in a couple of hours at the summit, but the best thing to do is get some kind of deterrence in place. You know, the idea that if both countries recognize um, they each have the capacity to seriously screw up the other's infrastructure, um, we, we might be able to get some kind of, um, well, if not mutually, discure, uh, mutually assured destruction, uh, then something like a mutual assurance uh, that things could get a lot worse for either uh, party of the relationship. Um, uh, I think that's going to be hammered out over time, probably not in the four-hour summit meeting. And on that point, Rob, it seemed as if uh, Biden, uh, you know, again, and I caught a portion of this pre- of the news conference, um, Biden made it very personal. You know, I mean, you know, you see the leaders, especially of of, of countries such as Russia or China, very stone faced, very uh, not very personal. Biden, very much the opposite type of person and, and said on his news conference, I said to Putin, and I'm paraphrasing here, how would you like it if uh, someone shut down the equivalent of the colonial pipeline and demanded ransomware from you so that is a direct shot very similar to what you're talking about if if these tables can turn quite quickly no i I think that's that's certainly the case um i think what about your thoughts on on offering that that. what about your thoughts on offering that personal opinion that you know what if we turn around and did that to you it doesn't it seems like it's not uh, a diplomatic language but yet was effective yeah i think so i think it's certainly the case the u.s has those capacities uh i hope it doesn't come to that but, but it certainly could I think the other interesting thing to pay attention to is the way that both these political systems seem to kind of cultivate different sorts of leaders. You know, Kenneth Waltz, who is an IR theorist uh, at uh, Columbia, talked a lot about this, about the way that different kind of um, leaders come up through different kind of political systems. You know, so whereas I think something like the U.S. political system would produce someone like a Biden who doesn't have any problem with emoting in public like that, I think you're right that something, a system that's a little more autocratic, like the Russian system or the Chinese system, really wouldn't favor you know, that kind of public emoting from leaders because it doesn't really uh, garner you public support. So I think it's an interesting contrast, not just in style, but in the ways those different political systems manifest themselves on the world stage. Uh, this is a little out of left field, but or maybe right field. Um, but we obviously know the difference uh, in perspective Biden had, uh, as opposed to Donald Trump, on Russia and Vladimir Putin and such. Uh, we often talk about the control that Donald Trump still has uh, over the Republican Party in the United States. How do you think he's feeling about this summit? Oh, boy. Um, well, he's probably feeling uh, left out. and He's probably frustrated. He can't uh, tweet about uh, how much Biden screwed up in his opinion. Um but I, I think in general, the interesting thing to point out is that um, a lot of foreign policy realism uh, on the Republican side has just sort of, um, you know, has just sort of vanished overnight because it's a party that is so enthralled to, uh, you know, to President Trump and his whims on the world stage that I, I think whatever kind of posture President Trump would take towards Russia, uh, you'd have 90 percent of the Republicans in Congress and in the country as a whole uh, Russian to endorse it. Um, you know, we just saw this in the U.S., and this is, I think, still a fresh memory, that there was an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, uh, a yeah. deadly insurrection. It was an attempt to stage a, an auto coup to overturn an election. Um, there were a handful of Republicans, people like Liz Cheney, um, who thought these were impeachable offenses, who thought that President Trump had no business trying to overturn an election, even though they agreed with him on policy. Uh, and they were purged from the party. 
you know, so I think we saw a pretty clear demonstration that the details of the policy don't matter, whether it's uh, cozying up to, a, to an adversary like Russia or overturning an election. I think what matters a lot more is loyalty to the president uh, and to the base of the party the president represents and speaks for. And I don't think that loyalty is going anywhere anytime soon. I think he's still uh, a contender to, um, to run in the 2024 election. And until he says he's not, um, I think that's where the center of the gravity of the party is going to be uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, I remember at the beginning of Donald Trump's term, I mean, the media was using the term bromance. There was like a bromance between Putin and and Trump, and and, and they just seemed to be, uh, you know, see eye to eye on things while he was insulting our allies. I'm surprised the American people just stood back and watched all of that happen and still do today and, you know, are with Team Trump as opposed to Team America, considering the past relationship with, with Russia and the United States and how they've always kind of been public enemy number one for the United States, yet Americans didn't seem to mind their leader cozying up to Putin. No, it's, it's, it's really, really surprising. But, you know, I think one of the things that a lot of people who study public opinion will tell you is that most, uh, you know, most Americans, and I imagine this goes for Canada as well, but you know, most people in democratic countries don't have really strong opinions on foreign policy. You know, of course, they'll tend to support yeah. the party line. And of course, in times of war, uh, they'll probably be a rally around the flag effect. But other than that, it seems like people's opinions on foreign policy tend to follow, uh, and not the other way around, their opinions on domestic policy. So when you see the leaders in your party or your party elites or someone like a Donald Trump you know, sending a very strong and public signal that uh, Russia is okay, Russia is our friend now, Putin has our interest at heart, he's a defender of uh, the West against uh, you know whatever boogeyman of the day it happens to be, most people on the basis of their uh, domestic political opinions will come around to that point of view. It's not that foreign policy is leading the way and domestic policy is, is, is following. I think it's the other way around. So I think you see a lot of partisanism, uh, partisanship and political tribalism dictating the content of people's foreign policy opinions. And I think you could see there there's sort of a switch on uh, Democratic and Russian hostility to Russia that happened during the uh, Trump presidency. You know, I remember in the debate that Barack Obama and Mitt Romney had in 2020, uh, 2012, uh, Mitt Romney said that Russia was the biggest geopolitical uh, ally to the U.S., uh, sorry, adversary to the U.S. Uh, Barack Obama sort of laughed at that point and said that Romney was living in the Cold War. Um, mm. but, you know, just four years later, uh, that position really flipped. I think you saw a lot of increased democratic hostility to Russia, a lot of increased Russian fr- uh, Republican friendliness to Russia. And I think it just goes to show that a lot of these opinions that people express on foreign policy are being led uh, by domestic partisanship at home. Um, yeah. And I think both parties are responsible for that in some ways. Uh, but you know, I think you're right. It's very egregious the sense in which uh, Republicans, I think in particular, have thrown out a lot of their foreign policy uh, commitments um, because they're 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 so closely tied to, to Trump and his political whims. It's fascinating because as this summit ended, but before the news conferences started, Biden is speaking now. Uh, there's lots of speculation that this ended early, that something had gone terribly wrong. Um, whereas as you listen to the news conferences, you, you really don't get that take at all. Uh, in your view, was this a success? Does this heat things up? Does this simmer things down? Uh, that's a good question. I think we're going to find out a lot more in in, uh, in coming days. If something did go terribly wrong, I assume we're not going to know about it in the in the uh, short term, but stuff will probably come out over time. But I do think to the extent that uh, this relationship between, you know, two nuclear powers, um, uh, two uh, adversaries that are armed with teeth, 
can go forward on a normal basis, uh, on the basis of uh, continuing to uh, restore the ambassadors to each country, uh, being able to have these sort of regular summit meetings, being able to treat one another uh, as uh, respectful adversaries rather than something uh, worse or with more animosity. I think that's all to the good. And I think it's fortunately, you know, despite the fact that opinions on Russia uh, differ across the partisan spectrum in the way that I just said, I think it's probably to the good that Biden is someone who's been dealing uh, with Russia and, and negotiating at a high level uh, with Russian leaders and politicians uh, for many, many decades. I think he's the kind of person that, at least as far as that relationship goes, is not inclined to rock the boat. Uh, and I think when you have uh, two parties that are armed to the teeth with uh, nuclear weapons, a uh, boat rocking is not something that you want. Um, so for me, that's a good sign. Uh, how is China viewing this, this summit between these two? That's interesting. I think that um, China, in many ways, uh, you know, has occupied much more of a boogeyman role in the way that uh, Biden talks about foreign policy uh, than Russia has. And I think especially in domestic policy, um, you've seen that the way that um, you know, Biden has tried to argue for stimulus spending, um, for uh, tech spending, for infrastructure spending on the basis of, of geopolitical competition with China. Um, again, I think as far as getting those domestic policy, policies passed, uh, that's a potentially uh, successful gambit just because um, you know, fear of foreign adversaries and fear of foreign competition uh, has traditionally um, driven a lot of U.S. domestic investment um, and a lot of U.S. progress in other ways. And I think it's interesting to think about the history of the way the Cold War and civil rights, for instance, interacted the U.S., you know, the way that U.S. politicians were able to say, uh, we're being watched in terms of our commitment to democracy and to civil rights at home. We have adversaries around the world who are pointing to our potential hypocrisies. And we have to deal with them. And I think it's interesting to see that if Russia isn't occupying that sort of role, the role that motivates uh, changes in domestic policy, China might be coming to occupy that role over time in the way that U.S. politicians talk about it. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But again, um, in any case, when you have uh, you know, two rival powers, you want to make sure that there are at least uh, regular and stable and predictable relationships between the, the governing elites in both those countries, because those sorts of relationships can become dangerous and get out of hand uh, very quickly. So I think China is watching this, and I think hopefully seeing that Biden is not someone who's inclined to rock the geopolitical boat too much. But on the other hand, I think in geopolitically we've seen uh, that China and Russia, um, you know, despite an earlier history of conflict, you know, share uh, uh, a lot of common interests around the world. Um, Perhaps more so than the United States. So which bad guy do you believe? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think that uh, I, I would say in general, it's not always great to think about uh, international relations in terms of good guys and bad guys. I think that's a particular um, uh, a trap that a lot of U.S. Uh, political thinkers can fall into. Um, and I think if there's anything that comes out of um, you know, the U.S. recent geopolitical experience around the world, uh, trying and failing to seat democracies in places like the Middle East, uh, it might be a turn toward a more realist kind of thinking in which you know, there aren't really good guys and bad guys, but there are interests that can be balanced off one against, uh, against one another. And I think you know, Biden, in many ways, uh, to be sympathetic to that kind of school and whether or not he is personally sympathetic to it, um, I, it seems to me that an increasing number of people in the U.S. foreign policy making elite are a little more sympathetic to it just because of the, the really rough uh, experience of U.S. foreign policy over the last uh, uh, generation or so, uh, you know, going back to 9-11. 
Interesting discussion. Rob Goodman with us, professor with the Department of Politics and Public Administration, Ryerson University, talking about the meeting between Biden and Putin and more still to come out of all of that. Rob, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks so much for having me. You be well, too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.